A quick note. This podcast was recorded about a month ago, prior to me becoming a father. Just wanted to let you know, because there's a little bit of talk about the topic, if you actually make it to the end of the interview. I got into manufacturing. Uh, actually, it started in my senior year of high school. Through my education, all the way back to grade school, I was in a learning disability program. And those classes were aided to help me with reading, writing, and uh, just general comprehension. And so school was always very difficult. My senior year of high school, through that uh, learning disability program, they took us to the local technical college where we got to tour the machining program, the automotive program, and the police science. And instantly, as soon as I got introduced to the machining side, I was hooked. This is Swarfcast. I'm Noah Graff. Today's guest on the show is Tyler Jerez, recently retired owner of 26 Products. Immediately after finishing tech school in his early 20s, Tyler moved to Bozeman, Montana to pursue a career in machining and go mountain biking and snowboarding when he had time. At age 40, he retired. In this interview, I asked him how he accomplished this feat and why. Today's podcast is brought to you by Graf Pinkert. Looking for a screw machine, rotary transfer machine, or CNC machine? Graf Pinkert's got you covered. When you're buying any used machine, you're taking a risk. So it's important to buy from someone who knows their stuff and who is going to give you straight information about what you're buying. Graf Pinkert is a family-owned firm that's been dedicated to selling great machine tools to the turn parts industry for 75 years. It specializes in the top multi-spindle brands, including Index, Schutte, Gildemeister, Tornos, ZPS, Acme, and Wickman. They also sell a variety of other types of used equipment, such as CNC Swiss, CNC turning centers, and parts washers. Machine tools are complicated. If you're going to buy one, you should go to people who are knowledgeable and committed to the industry. Learn more at www.graffpinkert.com. That's www.graffpinkert.com. I am very grateful to be with Tyler Jerez, retired owner of 26 Products. Welcome to the show, Tyler. No, thanks for having me on the show. Tyler reached out to me last week, actually stumbled upon the show. He has a very interesting story, and I felt like it was something that everybody would find interesting um, listening to this show. Uh, before I go any further, where are you talking to me from on Zoom? No, I'm sitting uh, in my kitchen in, in uh, Bozeman, Montana. Bozeman, Montana. And what is it like over there right now? Is it nice out? Uh, it's a beautiful day. I went mountain biking this morning. It's uh, 67 degrees. Oh, I wouldn't <laughs> have expected it to be warm. I mean, you guys are like north of here. I don't know. I think it's going to change tomorrow. We got snow coming. <laughs> <laughs> okay. As you guys heard in my intro just now, Tyler just retired. You are 40 years old? Yeah, turned 40 this month of April. All right. So he just turned 40. He had a very successful um, machining company. I want to go back and find out how he got into it and what led him to where he is now. So start at the beginning. You grew up in Wisconsin? Yeah, I grew up in Wisconsin. 
I got into manufacturing. Uh, actually, it started um, in my senior year of high school. And through my education, all the way back to grade school, I was in a learning disability program. Um, and those classes were aided to help me with reading, writing, and uh, just general comprehension. And so school was always very difficult. And so my senior year of high school, through that uh, learning disability program, they took us to the local technical college where they we got to tour the machining program, the automotive program, and the police science. And instantly, as soon as I got introduced to the machining side, uh, when, we, when we went through the machine shop, I was, I was hooked because I've always been into mountain biking and just biking in general. And I just saw these machines that I could produce something with my hands. Uh, I've always been really good spatial awareness. So kind of how things are made and, and whatnot. How did you feel as, you know, with them taking, I'm learning disabled as well. Um, and despite the field I'm in, I'm not very technically inclined, but how did you feel when they were, they specifically had your class go to see the trades stuff? What impression did that give you? Or you were just like, yeah, this is great. I don't like book learning anyways. So it was actually a relief because I remember my parents taking me to a couple different universities, maybe across Wisconsin. And I was like, there's just no possible way that I'm going to be able to <laughs> be successful in college. And so being introduced to that, the trade school, it was like, wow, this is finally something that I can be successful at. So what did your parents do? They weren't involved with the, with the same field, were they? No, not at all. Yeah. My parents, um, I, my, my father is a, was a salesman for a, a lumber yard. So he would travel around to different job sites and, and different contractors and, and sell them building materials. And my mother was, um, in charge of payroll at a, um, a lumber yard, a different lumber yard, but, and they both went to tr uh, just a technical school. My mother went to technical school for like a office clerical work. And my dad went to technical school for a drafting. But they still valued, you know, the point of higher ed, which is maybe one of the things you emulated, I guess. You went to a technical school. And what did they teach you there? I mean, we hear a lot about people going to trade schools, technical schools, schools to learn machining. It's, it seems like it's across the board what that can mean. What did they right. teach you? Yeah, so the school I went to, was a, a, I did a two-year degree in machining and then a, a one-year degree in welding. Um, mm. and, and the machining side was, I thought it was a really, even to this day, I think it was a really good program. They started us out on the manual machines and that was like for the first full year of the first, it was started on the lays and to the mill and it was all manual. So you really got kind of your basics. And then the second year of that school was all CNC based. So learning the cam and set up the uh, CNC machines. So you think that's pretty important for people to learn on the manual machines first? I, I truly do. Uh, it, because it's, I, they, I can't tell you how many people have come to my shop that have been like top-notch machinists. I can't, they seriously didn't even know you could tap a hole on a manual mill. And I think one thing that I, I kind of take away from that school, and I think is so important, is they, we had to even grind our own tools, which really taught us like, how does it, something even cut? What kind of, what does it take to make something cut? Is, and I thought that was uh, just having that background of that really yeah, baseline it makes knowledge total sense. is super important. Right. Because if you're trying to troubleshoot probably on a part that right. would help a lot. Okay. So you did three years and then you said, I am getting the hell out of Wisconsin. <laughs> yeah. During high school, I, I was way big into snowboarding. I used to compete snowboarding and things like oh, that. Wow. And so 
we used to go to Montana every spring break throughout my high school career or while I was in high school. Yeah. And, and from my first freshman year in high school is the first time I went, I uh, was hooked and knew uh, like, I'm going to, I need to get out here somehow. <laughs> as soon as I finished that, the three years of uh, technical school after high school, I went straight to Montana, Bozeman, where I live now. I, I landed and fell in love with it. You get to Bozeman, which is, that's like super fast growing, right? Oh my goodness. <laughs> yes. Unbelievable. Is that, are you a fan of that or you have mixed feelings about that? Um, you know, it's kind of reached the point of no return. It's, um, it, it was good at, at, at I'd say at its time, like work was plentiful, um, from it. And now it's, uh, overcrowding is definitely an issue. <laughs> yeah. Uh, recreation wise, just even doing anything, going to a brewery, uh, restaurants, everything is just, uh, out of control and, and prices here are very, very high. Yeah. You feel like you've been sort of invaded by. I mean, I also came here too. I came here 19 True. years ago. So I'm, I'm no different than everybody else. Like I came here because of love of the mountains. A lot of people came here because of that. And so I'm no different than anybody else. Here. Well, that's a, a fair perspective. So you came to Bozeman, you got a job in a shop, just started at the bottom, correct? Yeah. I, yep. Correct. Yeah. I worked at a, for $9 an hour at a machine shop, literally just loading parts in a, in just CNC machines and different machines they had. Um, but right away I, I started to just really, uh, work on, on the side at nights, just kind of making my own stuff for my bicycle. Did you need to do that? Or would you have been prepared pretty much to run machines from your technical school in Wisconsin? Would, did you just kind of need to see how an operation worked and then you could I thought it was kind so of, important. Right. I, I truly do. I think it's so important just to run parts and actually see how things cut, how things how a shop runs. I think you'd miss a lot if you just go straight to being a programmer at a shop. You know, you went to CA, like how long parts take to make, how what's actually involved in producing these parts, like cutting materials to uh, just other things that you'd maybe miss and which in turn helped me with quoting parts later on down the road. Okay. So you started at the bottom and then for the next um, 10 years, you worked in various shops. Or what's the time? No, actually, uh, yeah, I only worked in um, various shops for four years. Four years. So, and yeah. then 30 years old, you started your own shop? At 26. 26. Okay. Yeah. okay, so tell us how that worked. How did you start your own shop? That was really hard road. I, um, again, working at that machine shop, um, I used to just rent machine time from my boss. And so I would pay him $35 an hour to use his machines on on the weekends and I'd run small production runs of these bike parts that I was designing. What were you running it on? What kind of machines? I was running it on Haas mills. And then from there, I kind of, shall I say, uh, overstepped my bounds in terms of, you know, all good things have to come to an end using the machines way too much. <laughs> and so I got, what were the parts? A, uh, they were these brake levers for bicycles. So there are these hydraulic brakes that are hydraulic disc brakes that are on mountain bikes. Um, so I started making brake levers these high uh, hydraulic disc brakes that enhance the performance of the, the brake. And just brought them to local bike shops and eBay and things like that. Just whatever I could do. You know, was, at that time I was like 23 years old. So these were things that you needed for yourself. And then you figured, all right, now I'll just bring them around and say, Hey, I, I have this, this, these are good. Yeah. <laughs> Basically it's just 
kind of showed the bike shops like, Hey, this, this, these definitely enhanced performance. They looked really cool. They're anodized different colors and they really just kind of stood out on the bicycle. And, um, everybody like, it just likes machine. Oh, not everybody. A lot of people like machined parts that look cool. And so this kind of stood out and, and then you were local. So they probably, yeah, that too. So you took them around and then, then what, what led to the next stage? Well, the next stage was, uh, I went to, I had to go to another shop at then, um, needed greater challenges personally. Um, so I moved, I got a, a job at another machine shop in town, which allowed me way greater responsibilities. I was able to run the shop there. So I kind of just got immersed in quoting and, and just a ton of parts of so gained a lot of more experience necessary to, that kind of led me to starting my own business. But, um, I started, I designed this bicycle pedal and that's kind of the mainstay of kind of what 26 products was. Um, do you have so a pedal with you? Not the first one, but I do have the, um, one that where I left off. This pedal yeah, is good. extremely, um, grippy it is the main uh, concept that I was going off of. These traction pins here are extremely sharp. They really bite into your shoe. There's a wide pedal platform. So you're, they grip your foot really well. There's knurling here on the, uh, on some of the parts of the pedal body and just really intricate machining, titanium axles, um, unique seals that are in it. Um, basically you buy these there forever. Like people that own these just have them forever. And this is for mountain biking. This is for mountain biking. Yes. Cool. That's their intended use. Yes. Okay. So you were making the pedals and selling them on eBay, going to local shops and stuff. And then what happened? Um, then I kind of, just interest kept growing from that. Um, I was working nonstop on the weekends and, and after work too, uh, just working nonstop uh, to basically to build products. And eventually I was like, okay, something's got to change. <laughs> and so I got introduced to uh, a local technical college. It was actually in Butte, Montana, which is about an hour and a half from here. And so I'd travel over there and eventually I just had to go back to, I went to part-time at my day job. I worked uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursdays. So then I had Fridays and Mondays off work. So I could basically work four days in a row on the weekends on my own stuff. So I'd go over to Butte, Montana and rent from that technical college and just sleep in the bed of my truck and uh, just make as much as I could in that, in that four days and come back to work on Tuesday, just throttled. And it's kind of what I needed, I, you know, needed to do. And I did that for a few months and then, eventually just things were picking up, you know, sales were to the point where it's like, okay, I got to make this leap. I'm 26 years old. Like what else do I have to lose? Yes. Well, I I think that was a good calculation considering you didn't have kids. I don't know if what your relationship status was, but it, <laughs> so you made the leap. How did that feel when you, when you said, I'm just going out on my own? Uh, I mean, scary, but I've also been a confident person. Like I've always, I competed a lot snowboarding and, and same with mountain biking. So it's like through those experiences, this gave me confidence in myself. And, uh, I just knew that I had the work ethic and drive that no matter what I could find work for these machines. Like I knew the capabilities of the machine and what you could produce on them. So I knew that if bike parts wasn't the mainstay, I could pick up work locally from other people that needed manufactured goods. Okay. And so then when you went off on your own, you were making the bike parts, but then you started diversifying. Yeah. So I, I focused hundred percent on the bike parts. And then I'd like people would contact me from 
just because I, I met a lot of people throughout the Valley at those two machine shops I worked at just because I had a reputation at those machine shops and they'd contact me to do a little something. So I'd be like, Oh crap, I got to like tear the machine down to, to fit their stuff in. But again, you know, it's lucrative. So <laughs> it was definitely a very hard juggle at first to uh, tear down these production runs of bicycle parts. And I was going to shows, uh, some in California, some in Vegas. So just all these things that really uh, <laughs> kept me going. Yeah. You always work alone, correct? Yeah. I've always done best working alone um, at work just because I uh, really, the uh, quality of work that I've always done is super high, top notch. And it's really hard to find somebody with that same skill sets that I had or, or same um, attention to detail. And so throughout the whole time I've been in business, I've always just had a one employee, whether that's full-time or part-time just depends on kind of the season or the year or whatever work we've got going on. Even doing the books though, too, after feeling like, (laughs) you know, it seems like you describe yourself as not interested in book crap, um, (laughs) but you preferred to do it on your own. Is that just because you felt like you didn't need anybody or... I, I did the bookkeeping for the first couple of years, but then it got too complex and I, I hired that out to a, a local accounting firm, but that's super, you know, that's no problem to hire that out. Oh, okay. But yeah. So the accounting side that I, I hired out right away uh, after a few years in, but the machining side, I, I, I was even always the one, even to the day I quit or the day I got done working, I, I was always the last one to check a package that was going to go ship out to anodize or a different coding process or what have you. Cause I wanted nothing to fail. I wanted to just be the the person that my customers would 100% always rely on. And I've always trusted myself in that. And I'm not saying it's the way, but it's been successful for me. Sure. So you felt like the way that you were able to be the most reliable was by you handling it. Correct. And, and profitable too, because I was the best person to set up machines and run these parts efficiently. <laughs> yeah. Right. But we interviewed a guy a little while ago. His name is Ari Mizell, And his whole shtick is you have to be able to replace yourself if you have a business. Otherwise, you you own a job. You don't own a business. But you'd say you owned your job pretty much. And it worked. I definitely own my job, but I got paid handsomely to do that job. So yeah, it worked for me. So you describe yourself as passionate about machining. You've told me that before. So if you're passionate about machining, it's kind of interesting that you're no longer doing it as your your daily life. Is that because you burned out on it or you have other passions or it definitely not burned out on it. It got into manufacturing I I got first enticed in manufacturing in high school because I wanted to make bike parts. I first started my business making bike parts and it's something I've always loved to do. It's, it's uh, that's what I'm passionate about the machining side of creating something that you're into. And I'm extremely passionate about mountain biking and snowboarding. So I uh, definitely never burnt out on, on machining at all, but now I'm, I'm able to focus on, I have a job shop now, I, or sorry, just a hobby shop. I can focus on the side of manufacturing that I'm truly passionate about. That's making cool niche things for myself that, I deem important and challenging. How often do you go to your hobby shop? Definitely, uh, at least for sure, weekly. Um, first project I made this winter for myself was I, I made the molds to make a, my own snowboard. And that was something really high on my list that I wanted to make and never had time to do something of that 
great of a task. It's a huge task to do. And yeah, um, I really enjoyed it. What's one of your secrets to, you know, you, you, we were talking before and clearly w- one thing you'd say is that you're just really good. And um, so one thing you did was you're, you know, you're really good. You trust yourself and you earned a certain trust around you, but still, I mean, lots of people have talent and work hard and, you know, claim to be passionate about it. Why did this work for you and other people? It's not a set formula. Do you think you're just sort of extraordinary about what you do? You have true mastery and that's why you were able to do what you did? I definitely don't feel I have true mastery at all. I I think there's a couple ingredients. Uh, Talent was the first one, Um, hard work and just efficiencies. For instance, for the last 10 years, I've, I've lived above my machine shop. Um, mm. And so I've always focused on keeping the lathe running. So it's like I'd wake first, as soon as the alarm went off in the morning, I'd, I'd run straight downstairs before I'd do anything and would just throw a bar in the, on the lathe and, from a job from the previous night and just get a lathe, get the lathe running. So it'd run for an hour while I was upstairs eating breakfast and getting ready for work. And then same Smart. too, after yeah, as soon as I get done with work, I would just, you know, keep it, keep throw another bar, fresh bar in there before I left. So I could go mountain biking or go to, to dinner or something like that. So I'd always just really focus on those lights out manufacturing with the lathe. Cause that's, that's just one testament to the efficiency that I just focused on. Um, right. So you were trying to work smart. Yeah. Just trying like, to work smart. Yeah. yeah. And, and keep my overhead low. I was the only one on the books besides a a part-time employee, sometimes full-time employee. And so there's very little expenses. Yeah, that really does make a huge difference. You mentioned that you always wanted to put in an honest employee's work day. Explain that. Yeah, to speak to that, no, I, one thing I've really held myself to is accountability at work. I felt like I, I always treated myself as an employee. Like I wasn't on my phone or at all during the workday. Like just like I expect out of my employee, I expected out of myself. I wasn't going to be on the phone all day messing around on who knows what. If I were to take a longer lunch for an appointment, let's say, for a doctor's appointment or, or something else, I'd always stay late. So I always held myself to uh, accountable to a minimum of a 10-hour workday and whatever that entailed. If I had to take a little bit of time off during the day to, to do personal tasks, I would just stay late. Just no different than – I treated myself no different than I would expect an employee to work for me. And yeah. that really paid off leaps and bounds. Just think of like, if you take off five hours of the day of free time or throughout the week of free time, well, that's five hours of work you could have done. Listeners, first, I got to tell you, I'm so grateful for you guys tuning in. I know we have lots of competition out there. Freakonomics, This American Life, Joe Rogan. Also, I just want to let you know, if you have guest ideas or questions for me or Lloyd, we'd love for you to reach out. And if you want to talk about future advertising opportunities, we're very happy to talk to you anytime. Feel free to email me at noah at graphpinkert.com. That's N-O-A-H at G-R-A-F-F-P-I-N-K-E-R-T dot com. And now back to the episode. You now are quote unquote retired. Tell me about that. Did you always have this goal of I'm going to retire at 40? Um, you know, the goal started when I was 30 years old. Um, things were becoming 
very profitable. Machining was, um, I was gaining a bunch of uh, great accounts and great customers. And I knew that one day it was going to be attainable, not at 40. I anticipated 45 or 50, Mm -hmm. but it was a dream come true to be able to meet this goal when I did. You just had a number in your head. You, You thought, if I can get to X, this is going to enable me to to do whatever. Yeah, my wife and I own a building in downtown Bozeman, so we also have rentals in that building. Income, yeah, yeah, and so there's um, income from that. Um, and then, yeah, I, I definitely um, I work with a financial advisor, and I hmm. I had a, I had a number in my head that was the number necessary to continue the lifestyle that my wife and I wanted to live. And um, once I met that number. I knew it was the time to um, start having the true uh, seek out my other passions that I, that I love also. Okay. Are you pretty busy during the day? I mean, what are your days consist of? Yeah. I, (laughs) I I can't believe how busy I am actually. Um, One thing that is one of the um, coolest things that I get to do every day is I get to have coffee on the couch with my wife each morning. Um, Never was able to do that before. I always had to, bring my coffee down um, to work every morning really early. And now I get to do that every day. Today I, it was a Monday and I started my day uh, mountain biking. And yesterday, or sorry, uh, last week, Monday, it, it snowed a foot. So I went snowboarding. So, But you um, were doing that stuff before. I definitely was always doing, yeah. I would just on the weekends though. Um, so now I get to do it um, every day and in greater capacity than I ever did get to do it before. Yeah. It sounds like you think the way you did it worked for you versus maybe some people might say, well, I'd rather work a little bit less during each day and then get to do a little bit of that. Yeah. I see you go. For me, um, I, I'm a very person that's when I get involved in something, I sink everything into it. And so for me, it's like the work was just coming in and coming in. Uh, I couldn't turn it down. Um, so did so it feel like, like a sacrifice of your time or it didn't? You were passionate about it. You were so into it that it didn't feel like you were making a sacrifice for the future or did it? You no, know, it definitely, it definitely took its toll and it definitely felt like a sacrifice, but I knew that there was an end in sight and that it just had to tough it out. We'll call it tough it out. I mean, I still snowboarded and mountain biked and did all these fun things all the time, just not in the capacity that I truly want to be doing it in. And so, yeah, definitely it was a sacrifice, but I knew that it was short-lived. I mean, I'm listening to this book right now. It's called, it's something with 4,000 weeks is in the title. So, you know, I I don't know if you realize this, but if you live to 80, you get 4,000 weeks. It doesn't sound like a lot, right? doesn't seem like a lot. No. So the whole thing, this guy is how we're He's he talks about how we're all trying to squish as much as we can productivity wise. And the problem is once you can squish some in, you just keep wanting to get more and more in. And then instead of it actually saving you time that you have free time, you don't have any time at all. Um, And one of the things he was saying, you know, there are many people who say, well, once I get this done, then I'm going to be all set and I'll be able to do all the things I want to do. You do hear that from a lot of people, but they're planning on retiring at 65, I guess. Right. You know, I think if now 39 or 40 seems young to me since I'm 42, was that going on in your mind this whole time of once I get this done, 
then I'm going to be able to do all the things I want. Or was it a little bit of that? And also you strike me a little bit as though like you went to Montana immediately. It wasn't like I'm going to make these sacrifices and then I'm going to go to Montana. So you were already there and still like trying to, you know, get something out of it. Right. Yeah. Right. I mean, when I moved here, I moved here with the purpose to enjoy and recreate in the mountains here. And I never lost it. Like I even got, I got more driven like the minute I landed here when I was 21 years old. And it just, I knew that I could feel the fire. Like I just want to be in these mountains more and more and more. And this was a way for me to be in the mountains as much as I want. And I'm not getting any younger either. Like you can only recreate so hard um, when you're 65 years old and I'm never going to be healthier than I am today. And so that was another thing that drove me was like, I'm as healthy as I'm ever going to be. Yeah. I'm feeling aches and pains and all the, it's ridiculous. Everything that people say happens. Ugh. Anyways, I'll stop fetching. I have so much to be fortunate about. What gives you purpose? Uh, you know, the definitely purpose for me is uh, the, the recreation that I seek out. I love the getting space shots on your snowboard. That gives me a ton of purpose. Spending all the time in the mountains with the freedom that they offer. I love that side. Other purposes that I find is making unique, cool things for myself. Like that snowboard I made this winter also made some other tools for myself for building mountain bike trails. And I love that side being creative, right? right. Being creative. I, the thing I'm always struggling with is I want to do something to leave my mark on the world or affect other people. I think with you making the bicycle parts, I see that a little bit creating mm -hmm. something for other people that may not be that important to you. Maybe just enjoying God's earth and all the wonderful things in it is what makes you happy. But do you feel that way? Like in your current state of, it's hard to, for me to even imagine. I mean, clearly you're not stopping. Yeah. Um, do you feel like you are wanting to do something for, oh, I, there's something I'm doing that's influencing others in the world. But that sounds like that's not something that you prioritize. Yeah. Uh, I would say I didn't prioritize it. Like, uh, so about maybe six or seven years ago, the Helena High School. So that's the capital of Montana. They, their, their machining program is like in the high school is one of the best in around. And so um, the teacher and I hooked up. And uh, so he would send his students down every spring break, um, a select few from his program. And they would come to our, to my shop and they'd work with me for a week. And it was awesome. amazing. I got free labor <laughs> and I got uh. to instill, <laughs> instill in these students, just some skill sets. And, and, uh, one of them actually became one of my best employees for three years. Uh, really? She worked. Yeah. So it was uh, an amazing okay. opportunity there. I'd always go also every, um, the first of, the first day of school to that machine school or to that, uh, sorry, the high school. And I would speak with the students and their parents. So it was like a barbecue thing they put in after school on the first day of school. And all the students and parents in that program would have to come to that barbecue. And I'd speak with them. Uh, it started out like six years ago, you know, talking about machining and my products. And then eventually this last one I did this past September, it was focused on disabilities and yeah, not let that define you and seek out what you're passionate about. See, exactly. I knew that there was, that. yeah. Well, as far as the learning disabilities, you know, again, I, I'm learning disabled. You feel like it, it, it taught you some discipline, some grit, 
you know, uh, definitely. Yeah. yeah. I thought that being learning disabled to me, it was like, I almost felt like I had to overcome, well, I still, I have to overcome way more than the average student in school or a lot of the engineers I've worked with over the years. And so it it just kind of gave me more drive and more ability to just figure it out. Well, I mean, you know, there are a lot of the, a lot of like the, the CEOs of big companies and stuff happen to be learning disabled. I don't know if you knew that, but Um, it kind of makes sense in the end. Yeah. You become kind of great at something else. Well, as we wind down, I always like to ask people, what is something that you learned last week? Or perhaps something, you know, that that you read about that affected you or, or saw? You know, something that sticks out is actually a podcast I listened to this morning. It was uh, your, your podcast. Uh, Swarfcast. <laughs> uh, I think it's episode number 57. It was a, a gentleman on there that wrote a book, Getting Young Individuals into Manufacturing in, in the Trade School. And that always resonates for me because uh, I feel like it's definitely under maybe utilized and definitely not held in such a high regard uh, as I feel it should because trades are so important. There's so much you can do with them and be so successful with them. So, what do you think people can do to achieve that? Or do you think? And part of it, do you think, is is people like yourself, you know, doing a podcast like this or going to schools? Is that one of the most important things? How can we solve the problem? Last, I don't know if it's a problem we can solve or we can address is, yeah, I think it's a lot of societal and parental things that are influential there. You know, like uh, my parents went to a trade school, so trade schools were accepted and really highly valued where some other individuals are maybe uh, colleges there, their parents say, if you're not going to college, you're disappointed in them. Um, and so I think it's kind of like a shift of that culture for that to yes. kind of push people into trades or, cause I've seen so many people come through my door that they just missed the mark on what they're good at or passionate about because they went to pursue uh, education that their parents or society or their friends, peers thought that was a deemed a, a, a good decision. Yeah. I mean, no offense to higher ed. I mean, it's a great way to network and it's a great way to to have a lot of fun. That's for damn sure. But I, I think you're totally right. Even if you do go and excel in college and get straight A's and go to a grad school, you know, there was this book. I didn't actually read the book. I listened to this podcast called The Next Big Idea, where they talk about books and it was about the meritocracy about how the meritocracy isn't, it doesn't really exist anymore. You know what I mean? By the meritocracy, it's this whole, like, if you go to a good college, you know, you can get a good internship. And if you get a good internship, then you can get a good job. And if you get a, you know, then you'll go up in the ranks and then you'll, this whole formula of, of doing that can't work because too many people are doing it. If everybody's playing the same game, even if you're doing a great job, even if you are cut out for book learning. Right. So thank you. I'm so glad that that was one of the, that was something you said. And I, and when you said it was podcast number 57, I was like, uh, yeah, which one? (laughs) (laughs) You totally made me feel so good. Oh my God. Totally boosted my ego. Um, and I asked this other question to people, you've sort of shed light on it already, but, um, when you hear the word happiness, what does that make you think of? Happiness to me is honestly 
spending time in the mountains, spending time with my wife. Those are the things that I truly see happiness. I look at you and, and you seem happy. You seem very content. And I consider myself pretty happy. Um, but you seem like, I look at you, you seem very like at peace, you know? Definitely. I set myself up that way in life. I pursued things that really made me happy. Recreation, a career that was super fulfilling, something that I was passionate about and driven to do. So I, I feel like I've checked all the boxes for myself. You feel like you've checked all the boxes, but you're 40 now. And what's the next box you need to check? Because, I mean, come on, you need to keep going. <laughs> well, that was one thing I knew that I needed to just take that time to figure out what the next box is. And and what I mean by take that time is just spending as much time as I want to do the things that I want to do. Uh, Recreation-wise to personal projects in the shop, self-growth that way. Yeah. Um, so I don't have the next box to check uh, today formulated. I'm not sure what day that when that'll happen or what that box will be, but whatever it is next, it's going to be just like I've kind of structured my life is around something I'm passionate about, something I'm driven to do. That's so fantastic. I'm, I'm, I think envious is a bit strong, but it sounds like you, you've cracked the code, at least for you. So <laughs> I, I'm struck by it. Um, is there anything else? you'd like to say to uh, the world, to today's machining world? I mean, something that really always sticks, always sticks out for me is don't let your deficiencies define you. Follow your path. Interesting. All right. Well, thank you. And it's going to come out sometime in the next few weeks. I'm going to become a father in yes. two to three weeks. Oh my God. That's exciting. <laughs> You're ready. No, of course not. I'm not ready. <laughs> yeah, who's, who's ready? <laughs> I'm used to living a life like you. Like, just, you know, come home and do whatever I want. And But uh, I'm sure it's going to be a great adventure. That's going to be an awesome adventure, Noah. It's sweet. <laughs> I'm excited for you. Thanks. You mentioned before that it's just not your thing, having kids. Yeah, not that's something my wife and I are going to be pursuing. Yeah, well, we there was a good chance we weren't going to do it either when she we're old she she always <laughs> likes to call herself a geriatric pregnancy <laughs> that's true she's almost 43 but i mean i think it's cool if you guys lived a huge chunk of your life half of your life without a child so you got to do a lot of cool things you know and i respect you having a child when maybe i don't know just hypothetically, they did all the cool things you wanted to do. And now it's time for a different chapter. Oh, well, I hope I'm going to do a hell of a lot of cool things. I hope. Well, yeah, yes. Yeah, I hope it's just getting started. I felt like I needed a little bit more movement in my life, too. That makes sense. It makes a little sense. Yeah, I'm, I hear you. I mean, I think, you know, when I, I moved here when I was 21, so it was like I was by myself. Uh, I didn't have any parents around, of course. Like, it's not like I had to go to any parent. Sorry, not parent. I didn't have to go to family events. You know, it's, I lived in Montana. I was like, I had a whole new chapter. I could clean slate, you know. Not that I needed a clean slate, but, you know, it's like I got to define myself and what I wanted and what I needed. Hmm. That's a very astute comment. Are you sure you don't read all kinds of, like, analytical, self-helpy bullshit, that kind of stuff? Not nothing like I mean, that. No atomic habits yeah. or like. I'm not gonna. I mean, I'm not 
uh, ignorant, uh, but I, I, I have never read a book. <laughs> I, um, no joke. I, what about listening um, to books? No joke. The only book um, I listen to with my wife is um, Harry Potter. I, well, I, if you're going like, to listen, if you're going to listen to a book, it's a pretty good one. I mean, it's a good one. Yeah. I mean, uh, but like I said, I just started listening to podcasts when I January 1st of this year. So it's like, yeah. <laughs> well, if you need any recommendations, um, <laughs> like I could probably name a few that you'd find pretty good because it seems like you're a very cerebral person that would probably appreciate it, but you never read that many books because you are a slow reader or I'm a slow reader, well, but yeah, um, honestly, I, again, it's like my weakness. It's like, I'm not strong at it. And so, uh, I don't get a whole lot out of it. I have a very short attention span first off with the, with the book. And so also comprehension of it. I, I don't get a whole lot out of it when I read, read myself, I need to listen to it to do it. And to be honest, time, it's like, I was, you didn't think about listening to listening to stuff while you were machining. Oh, I definitely can't. When I'm at work, I'm like, so focused. Like, I mean, what my wife, Lauren could tell you, it's like, I'm just driven at work. Um, when I'm at work, you know, it's like when I check out, I'm, when I'm, when I, when I punch out for the day, I'm, I'm good. I'm not like weirdo, you know, but like when I'm at work, I'm like, so focused. I'm in it to win. Um, so oh, like no I, music. I, I just listen to heavy metal at work, but it's never like cranking. It's just there on as a kind of calms me down, you know, kind of just gives it that kind of takes away the other hums going on. But no, I mean, I definitely could never listen to a book at work. It's like, I was so focused on my job and what I was doing. I mean, I was running so many machines at a time. So it's like, I was just, yeah, you gotta be focused, you know, it's how I worked. You know, I just, I'm a, I focus and I'm driven and I just, it just worked for me, you know, how no. all my employees listen to books and it's like, I always see it, it screwed them up, you know, <laughs> not screwed them up in a bad way, but I mean, not, not screwed them up in the way you're, I mean, it's like they, they, they you, they miss things, you know, at, at work, you know? Yeah, no, I get that. But I mean, like in the car, it's like nothing like I, a book just, or a podcast. Love it. Man, to be honest, for me, it's like I get, I was just such, so under so much stress and pressure. It's like, I get done with work. I go to the mountains. It was like, I just, no music. I just like decompress, you know, just think about the day. I don't know. It just worked for me. Again, it's not for everybody. No, I know. But I'm, it's like this one book I'm listening to the 4,000 weeks thing. I mean, what he says is a lot of the things you're, you say of just, like stopping and being in that moment, not worrying about what you're going to do next. Or he was talking about, I don't know if this is analogous or not, but there was this really interesting story about a guy who decided he was going to become a monk. And so he, he went to Japan, a white guy. And, you know, first they like, won't even give him a chance, you know, and, and then he begs and they're like, all right, finally, you can like, sweep floors for us and you know serve us breakfast or whatever and maybe we'll give you a chance and then then they made him do this thing where he had to like douse himself with like ice cold water just pour buckets on it it was like the most painful thing and what he did was he would try to think of something totally different to distract himself and what ended up happening was for some reason that made it all the more painful he wasn't able to handle it until he started just thinking about the thing, not thinking huh. about when it's going to be over or thinking of something warm or whatever. Huh. 
once he did that and he just like leapt into it, I guess he was able to handle it. And I don't know, was then able to eventually become a monk or something. I don't know. I'm not interested, not doing the best job of telling the story, <laughs> but the point of it is like not running away from it and just trying to like be in the moment. I don't know. It's one of the things I'm, I'm trying to do. That's interesting. That's interesting. Do you, you, you probably can relate to that, right? Uh, definitely. Like uh, through my work, through my recreation, it's like, I'm, I'm in it. From today's machining world, this is Swarfcast. If you like this podcast, please subscribe to the show on your favorite app and give us a five-star rating and a review. And don't forget to tell your friends about it. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and todaysmachiningworld.com to join our mailing list, read episode summaries, and watch extended interview videos. I'm Noah Graff. My occasional co-host is Lloyd Graff. Our managing editor is Ridgely Dunn. Our audio engineer is Patricio Garcia. For information on advertising or to submit an idea for a future podcast, follow the contact information at todaysmachiningworld.com. Thank you.